Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Guys, this is uh, Dr. Robert Harrison. He is a professor of uh, environmental and occupational medicine at UCSF. Is that right? That's right, Subin. Yeah, and you've been on the show before. We talked about silicosis in... uh, countertop fabricators, right? Well, that seems like decades ago. That was before COVID. I don't know if there was an occupational problem before COVID. I I, I don't think there was compared to COVID, right? But so tell me, so the reason we wind you back on the show, and I think it's a perfect timing, is that with COVID, you have been on there on the front lines going, okay, how do we keep workers safe? What's going on on the front lines? What's going on in correctional facilities? But you started talking about the opera before we even decided to start the show. And I'm gonna fold that in because tell me how in a room where you're projecting particles and aerosols, you keep people safe. Well, first of all, Zubin, thanks for having me here. My pleasure. Um, uh, I've been helping with a, a team of my colleagues and other experts from UC San Francisco We've been giving some help and advice to the San Francisco Opera because after January, uh, certainly in March, when we went into the shutdown, um, pretty much all arts and live performances had to stop. Mm. And as a personal devotee of live performance and the arts, I think it's really at the core of our society. Mm. It's my church. When I go to the opera or the symphony or the ballet, I feel like I'm in church. It just feeds my soul. So getting our arts organizations back running as soon as we can safely, um, I think is just so important to everybody, including myself. Um, And so when you mention how to do that at the San Francisco Opera, first of all, let me just thank all the the great artists out there who work for the opera and other organizations, whether big or small. Um, They're all shut in trying to provide, you know, the performances to us online Um, because COVID is transmitted by, as uh, many of the audience probably know, a combination of droplet surface and aerosol, small particles. And we know that people who sing can spread COVID. This was seen in uh, the spring with uh, the publication out of the Washington Chorus, right? Um, where uh, there was probably a super spreader an older woman who was a choral member who came in and sang. Um, and dozens of other choral members were infected. In fact, I think a couple unfortunately couple died, died yeah. in that episode. And that was one of our first clues that COVID is airborne. Mm. So when we have singers, of course, in an opera um, or a symphony, let's say, you know, if there's a chorus, chorus in one of the symphony performances, there is going to be airborne potential. Yeah. Or infection to other performers, symphony members, stage crews, and so on. 
So, so let me clarify a few things. And first of all, just so people know, because we appreciate this and you are a uh, occupational and environmental you know, uh, researcher and doctor, because we're talking, uh, in a in a space, we've taken precautions here. We have our masks with us, and we wear them until we start the interview. We have we're spaced out. We have ventilation going, a fan pulling in air, windows open, doors open. So we do our best to minimize risk. But when you say airborne, this is a very charged term, right? Because some people say, well, does that mean aerosolized like measles, or does that mean droplets like six feet? How do you think about that? How do you talk about that? Well, the terminology can get really confusing. Mm-hmm. So when I say airborne, it means that it's transmissible through the air, through a um, variety of different particles, uh, 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 through particles of different sizes. Mm. So some of them are large, they're emitted, they drop to the ground within a couple of feet rapidly. Others become very small as the water droplets evaporate in the air, they become very small and they can, became, they can become airborne over a feet or even more. Mm. Uh, even more than six feet, which is the rule of thumb that we use. Um, so there's a particle size distribution. So I like to, to think of the word particle mm. as the best way to describe this, a particle in the air. Droplets generally mean large. Aerosol means tiny little particles over some period of, di- over some distance. It's not a black and white thing and there's a range of particle sizes. Like there's, there's a range of particle sizes and there's risk um, through both routes. And thank you for mentioning, uh, I'm not wearing a mask here today um, because we're at a distance from each other. Um, you've assured me that the ventilation in this room is good. I'll hold you to that, Zuna. <laughs> <laughs> Did I make you sign a waiver? I don't know. I better have Wait, I didn't see that yeah, fine yeah, print. Yeah, oh boy, the COVID waiver, right, right. And well, so here's the, here's a question. So then, you're, you're sort of tasked with this very difficult and also exciting, because this is your kind of life's work, how do we manage risk and transmission risk in workplace environments, which are often enclosed spaces, right? They're often indoor spaces. Often indoor spaces. Yeah. Um, it's what I call layers of protection. So, you know, the for one, one layer is this face covering. We can talk later about different kinds of face covering sure. and what we know about these. Um, Face, face coverings alone are not uh, a holy grail. It's not like what I imagine Indiana Jones in that movie. You know, he he goes into the cave, you know, and he finds that goblet. Oh, yeah. You know, and- You have chosen. You have chosen <laughs> poorly, right? Um, and then the guy disintegrates yes. into dust. One of my favorite scenes, by the way. Classic. So, right, so this, this face covering is not like choosing the goblet of the holy grail, okay? It's not gonna prevent everybody from getting infected. Mm. Um, So it has a layer of prevention here. Science shows that it's probably effective, Um, but we still need to socially distance in a workplace. And this becomes very challenging. We can talk more about some of these workplaces in which the six feet or or more social distancing rule uh, is very, very challenging, if not impossible for some workplaces. Right. Ventilation is another layer. Uh, we talked about ventilation in this room, um, but there are good scientific studies that will show that a certain amount of room air ventilation can reduce the infectious dose of those particles. Mm. Um, and then the fourth layer is testing. And there, are, I, I put testing in three different kinds of baskets. Um, and we can talk more about what those baskets are if you want. Um, um, and um, and if and then and then we have all of those in place. 
Um, we really don't know if you ask me, zoom in, well, is a face covering more important than ventilation? Right. Is that more important than testing? Is right. that more important than distancing? We don't know. Yeah. But we do know that you combine all those together at this point. It's like the Swiss cheese model, right? If, you, if all the holes align and you have nothing, uh, you can, you know, virus will slip right through. If you have one thing, well, you're less likely, but it's still possible, right? And, and, and you can have failure where holes align and you're just unlucky. You can have all three and still get infected. Correct, exactly. Uh, and so it's important to know that it's, it's a spectrum of risk. It's not a black or white yes or no answer because people will ask me those questions a lot. Like, well, okay, Thanksgiving's coming. You know, my, my grandfather is at high risk. What should we do? Should we wear face shields? Should we wear, you know, how, how when friends and family ask you this stuff, I mean, how do you even begin to address it? Because you've already told us three sort of layers. How do you talk to them about risk? Um, for Thanksgiving? Let's just say Thanksgiving. Right, for Thanksgiving specifically, keep those groups really small. Yeah, so just lower the probability. Lower the probability. It's yeah. just a matter of probability. Um, if I have 10 people in a room, I have a higher probability that someone's gonna be infectious and I don't know it mm. than if I'm with one other person mm. who I've assessed is keeping safe, keeping in a uh, you know relative bubble. Mm. Um, that makes sense. And he, so here's a question, then let's go back and let's dissect each of those three tools that you talked about. So face coverings. Now this has been, for some reason, incredibly controversial. You and I were even talking off camera, like early on, are cloth masks a useful face covering relative to surgical or N95? And early on, I wasn't convinced they were. Uh, your colleague, Monica Gandhi, actually has increasingly convinced me that maybe the viral inoculum is lowered by masks and therefore they are useful no matter what kind they are. But what's your thinking? How do you think about face coverings? Well, uh, I think about face coverings as one effective tool. Yeah. It's again, I say it's not some holy grail. It's not some magic answer. It's a risk reduction tool. Um, you know, in January and February, when the pandemic started, um, there was a shortage of face coverings. Mm. And so what happened is if you remember, everyone was thinking, oh, I'm going to go out and sew my own. I'm going to get my friend. They're going to begin sewing, you know, face coverings, everyone on Etsy, <laughs> I uh, remember this. on YouTube yeah. and tried to figure out, well, how do I make an effective face covering? Um, and so... What I see now is every everything from a buff to a bandana uh, to a homemade face covering um, of all of all different materials. Personally, I <clears throat> I believe there's only one face covering worth having. Zubin, I I think that's the face covering. I think you should patent it. I think you should put it on Etsy, and I think you should sell it. I I'm the most powerful Etsy purveyor in the galaxy. Well, Zubin, can I just ask you, what Who's would that- Who's Zubin? I'm, I'm Doc Vader. I, oh, sorry, I, sorry, Doc Vader. What would that look like in a meatpacking plant? Now that's where it gets real because, you know, my Padawans, many of whom are in fact meatpackers, don't like it when I come into work like this. So, you know what? I'm going to get Z-Dog so you can talk about that. You know, Z-Dog, I just saw this image. It was like a dream <laughs> that came to me. There was this guy in this Darth Vader- helmet and he was talking about using that in a meatpacking plant it's a papper honestly i mean it's a it, it's a really high quality uh mass so well, it, so you know we should i shouldn't make light because meatpacking plant workers i've been 
tremendously impacted. And, and you've been dealing with this, so tell me about this, because this it, it, it was fascinating, cold environment. Uh, what's going on with meatpacking that makes it so particularly difficult? And let's relate it to the face covering question as well. Well, sure. Yeah. So um, you know, early on in the pandemic, uh, we had a critical shortage of both face coverings and N95s, a higher level of PPE, mm. which we so desperately needed for our frontline healthcare workers at the time. Um, and so we had all sorts of different face coverings and then a lot of conflicting messages about the adequacy of face coverings. And so in meatpacking plants and other workplaces where the social distancing was not in effect, where uh, if, if you've been in a meatpacking or a poultry plant, as I have been in a poultry plant in mm. Southern Missouri about mm. 25 years ago, um, you're working a foot away two feet away max. Oh, so you're cramped in pretty You tight. are cramped yeah. in as the, this was a poultry plant, the birds are going by at 150 per minute. Wow, it's like that I Love Lucy episode where she's trying to keep up with the chocolates and ends up eating them. But if you ate raw chicken, you would die. Exactly. Uh, well, you know, it. I show that episode from I Love Lucy to my students actually, because <laughs> I talk about line speed oh. as a problem oh. in the workplace. Yeah, yeah. And so line speed, is really the critical factor in a poultry and meatpacking plant because in order to get so many, so much production per minute, you have to have a lot of people in front of that material, right? It's just uh, a simple math. Uh, so if we slow the line speed down, we could distance workers further apart. Uh, but what happens when line speed is slowed? There's less chickens, there's less- Profit. Yeah, there's less bacon coming out and there's less profit. And, and so it's, a, it's a very calculated um, formula between the line speed, the number of workers, and the profits being made. Ah. And so um, in, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we had dozens of meatpacking plant outbreaks around the country mm. um, related to the closeness of all the workers, the line speed, um, and the variability in the face coverings, so the lack of personal protective equipment. Um, and that interestingly, because it's cold, mm. there's some thought that the virus may survive for longer at lower temperatures. Right, in the air and in on the surfaces. Air. Yeah. Exactly, and on surfaces. So that could be another risk factor in those plants. The ventilation in poultry and meatpacking plants is set up for the chickens yeah. and the beef. So <laughs> it's actually all designed uh, to keep bugs out of the Oh, right, because you don't produce. want flies laying eggs in the- Yeah, well, you don't want salmonella contamination. Right. You don't want the flies, you don't want the microbial contamination, but it's not designed in the ideal way to prevent airborne transmission. Interesting. What's yeah. the difference? Well, what's the subtlety and the difference? Well, the subtlety is the direction, uh, the direction of airflow. Ah. Um, if you have a, a large number in a very in an open space, how do you get enough air changes per hour mm. to turn over in that space? Mm. So that's how you think about it, is how much of the, the the air volume in that area are you turning over per unit time? Exactly. So, for yeah. instance, we're in this room, Zubin. Um, what I'd like is four to six air changes an hour of fresh air. Fresh air, yeah. Fresh air coming yeah. into this room. So not recirculating. Lot, not recirculating, because mm -hmm. a lot of buildings, because of energy conservation. Right. And I'm all for energy conservation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we have a tension now between uh, healthy buildings, healthy environment, 
and getting enough fresh air changes coming in to these buildings to turn over the air. Interesting. Every four to six times an hour. So how useful are things like filtration within a recirculated air? So filtration works. So you have these, what are called MERV, yeah. M-E-R-V filters. And what what's the minimum MERV say for a household? Well, uh, for, for a workplace, let yeah. me just address the workplace. Yeah, yeah. So you need a MERV 13. Oh, that's pretty high. It's high. Puts stress on the HVAC units too. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to build, you have to have an HVAC system that can accommodate it or can be beefed up. Got it. To run it through a MERV 13 filter. Right, but that's gonna capture viral particle sizes that are in the range of what you're talking about. Exactly. Fascinating, so. And so if you don't have a MERV 13. Yeah. Then you need to supplement the air changes uh, in that room. So you could have a MERV 13 with a lower number of fresh air changes, but if you don't have that MERV 13, then you gotta, Ah. Then you have to build up the air changes yeah, yeah, yeah. in that room. So you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta get for a lot of buildings and a lot of workplaces, you gotta get an expert, certainly. Well, so this has already got me thinking about this space. So I have a MERV 13 filter in our unit here uh, and it's a newer unit and I put it in after COVID and I run it on fan and that circulates um, air through the filter and through a vent right there that then goes into probably pulled into the fan out there. And so I, I'm gonna map this out. Is there, how do you, are there sprays or things you can test to see the airflow patterns in a room? Like, how do you test that? Well, the only test you could probably do practically yourself is to see if you have an exhaust in this area, if you have a register or a duct that's pulling air out um, right, because that's going to tell you we have air in, but then is there going to be recirculating out of this room? Right. You 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 get a ladder or a step stool. You take a tissue, and you hold it against that exhaust register, oh. and that's going to tell. Am I getting exhaust out of here? But it's not going to tell you how much and what the flow is. Mm. And then you need to get a tape measure. <laughs> it's getting complicated. Yeah, it's getting yeah, complicated, yeah, yeah, isn't yeah, it? And yeah. you got to measure the volume, the cubic foot of your space. And then you gotta measure airflow in, airflow out, and you gotta figure out the air changes per hour in that cubic footage. So All right, so Zubin, I, I know you've gotten an advanced education. You know, you've, I, I think you may even have a degree from UCSF, I don't know. I'm feeling pretty dumb, Bob. Yeah, uh, thank so you for that. I, I, I feel very dumb very quickly <laughs> around this very issue. Um, so what I recommend to businesses yeah. who are thinking about, proper ventilation and returning people to work is getting someone who knows this business right. to come in right. and help them. So these are HVAC specialists? These are HVAC specialists, okay. exactly. So let's go back to the meatpacking plant then. So we talked a little bit about ventilation. They didn't have the ideal ventilation for that. The distancing was not necessarily there. The uh, face coverings, talk about that again. So what kind of face covering would you like to see to have the best effect in that part of the algorithm? At least. If it's cloth, elite, cloth, this is not cloth. This is from yeah. my hospital. Yep. We, we get one this of one these. Too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so either either one of these, um, which is made out of a, uh, a special kind of uh, material that has a, a fil filter built in, in the manufacturer of this material. Got it. Right? So, and it also has a rigid nose clip here. That helps you to mold it and create a seal. Exactly. Right. I, can get, I can get a better seal right. out of this. Yeah. Um, it has, you know, two straps that'll fit 
pretty uh, tightly over my ear. And you're supposed to wear it like this, I understand. Yeah, as far below the nose. <laughs> yeah, I'm only kidding, yeah. And you see I it a lot. I, it I lot. can't tell you how many people I, I see. I, uh, yeah. I, I would take an informal poll if I had a little clicker. Um, and uh, even in my colleagues, they'll be talking to me, and it'll drop. It'll drop. It'll drop, and I was just... <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And you'll be doing this the whole time. Oh man! And so you got to get that really good seal here. If if uh, if this is not available, then a cloth is okay, but it should be at least three ply. Three ply. Okay. Three ply. Okay. Yep. And I can share some studies and some websites with you that talk about the filtration that you get from at least a three ply material. So you'll you'll give me those and I'll put them in the show notes on our website. That's absolutely perfect. Yeah. yeah. I think I think it'd be very helpful because yeah. I get this question often. Yeah. Well, it's um, a it's an existential question for a lot of people who are like, well, if I wear a mask and it's a garbage mask, like a single ply, you know, polyester thing, is that helping at all? You know? Yeah. Um, it's probably not. Yeah. I mean, it's helping some. Very small amount. But right. a very small amount. And there's some also there's some recent papers that have compared. Right. Uh, the effectiveness of different face coverings. Right. So what 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 I what folks I think need to keep in mind is okay. I put this on right. Right. And uh, first of all, I have a beard. Right. Um, so I'm not getting as good a, a seal. Right. As you might be getting without the beard. Right. Um, ideally, I should be shaving. Hmm. Um. And uh, especially if I'm 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 going in and I'm uh, seeing a COVID positive patient, right, right, I'm a healthcare frontline healthcare worker, and I'm fit tested for a real respirator in N95, right. Um, I'm not going to get a good seal, right, with facial hair, right. Um, I'm going to get leakage right around the edges here, and that's really why that's why these face coverings, aside from the filter characteristics in the front, right, why these face coverings are not totally effective. Right. Because I'm getting particles that are coming out the side. That's right. And this has been demonstrated time and again in aerosol physics studies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting though, is even with these surgical masks, the amount of uh, infection and so on in, in hospital settings seems to be quite reduced, even with just surgical masking. Am I understanding that data wrong? Even beyond N95. I think you're understanding that data correctly, mm. but with one caveat, Zubin, mm. um, in these in these hospital studies, like everything else in the world, they're multifactorial. Mm. So hospitals that have gone to universal face coverings, yeah, like uh, my hospital at UC San Francisco, yep, here we at Stanford, to, yeah, Stanford went to it very early, yeah, I think uh, by April, right. I think we had it required for everybody. That's right. Who came in, but we also put into place very shortly after patient testing, everyone who's admitted gets a COVID test. Um, we have very strict symptom screening at the door. Mm. You can't get in unless you've completed a symptom check. Mm. Um, very important, we have accessible and free testing. Mm. So if you have a, pretty much I say, if you have a sniffle that you think was more than your allergy that day, a little scratchy throat, call our hotline. Mm. You can get a test and get the result back practically the same day. So, so th this then gets to that third tier. So we talked about face coverings. And so basically, let, let me just summarize quickly for the audience. So for face coverings, ideally, and I've been saying this, 
surgical mask is better than a cloth mask. If you use a cloth mask, cloth mask, three ply is better than two or one. Um, an N95 or higher is not necessary probably for most people in public, but definitely for people at high risk in high risk settings like uh, aerosolizing procedures, maybe meat packing or uh, no? Direct care for a COVID patient if direct you're a frontline healthcare worker. I would say even without an aerosolized generated procedure. Interesting, okay, yeah, so, important. Yeah, very yeah. important. So yeah. uh, we we now have enough N95s okay. to provide Oh, and we should have enough in most facilities now. Okay, and and recently, I mean, there was even news out of UCSF that some people tested positive at the facility. Was that, do, do we have any more information on that? Is that a Yeah, fit? so what happened, and, and this was, I think, in uh, the local paper here. Yeah. Um, we test all, all patients who come to our facility. Right. You get admitted, you get a COVID test, um, and you're negative. Mm. Um, if you're positive, of course, then you're, you're put in a COVID uh, uh, room uh, with all the full PPE. All right. the staff knows then the per person is admitted and is COVID positive. But we get people, and we've just, and, and this was what, 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 what happened. Somebody's admitted as negative, but then turns positive. Mm. Because remember, mm. COVID testing is not perfect. Correct. It can be in this incubation period. That's right. That's a negative true. doesn't necessarily a mean. A negative doesn't mean mm -hmm. you, you might not be positive tomorrow. That's right. And so were there staff then that were exposed? Was that so, it? Yeah, so staff yeah. were exposed. Got it. And did not know, assume that the patient was negative. Aha. Uh -huh. And then the patient, this individual turned positive mm. Um, mm. Before, before discharge. Now, do we know that those staff were wearing even surgical masks? Oh yeah, they were wearing they were. face coverings. Uh -huh. Yeah, but, but, uh, but the patient was not. Ah, because she thought, right, well, she, right, yeah, right, right, right. So, so because uh, I'm negative. So again, you know, and I don't know whether it has some analogies to the so-called, you know, Rose Garden super spreader event. Right, right. Nobody knows the details. Nobody knows. There. This is interesting because again, it's that Swiss cheese thing. Okay, well, if patient and doctor are wearing surgical masks, that's better than only one wearing surgical yes. masks. If one's wearing N95 and one's wearing nothing, that's a different algorithm. But so, so what's interesting here is, and I remember reading this, most of the people who were positive in this case did not have a whole bunch of symptoms or get very sick. Am I wrong about that? No, you're right. So then it gets to, again, that inoculum question. Yeah, it gets to the inoculum question. Yeah. And um, can somebody you know, have a higher inoculum was just, just the, uh, the individual that had a higher infectious load right? Um, and then um, spread it through the air um, in her room. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, and so it, it, it just is, is a, I think it's a lesson learned yeah. That as much as we think we can cover all the things that we think we're trying to do right, yeah, uh, we have to take heed to this virus that I can be negative today, but I can be positive tomorrow. Right. Um, and uh, and so I still need to be uh, take all those precautions. It's almost like the universal precautions principle that I remember, you know, you know, drummed into me as a medical student. Right. You Treat just everyone, assume. Just assume that everyone has, you know, back in the day, it was everyone had hepatitis B. Right. I didn't want to get a needle stick. Right. I assumed they were infectious. Yes, 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 exactly. Universal precautions, which I think are valid. And I have a quick question. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but it related to that. Have we seen levels of C. diff and other hospital acquired infections dropping since COVID? That's a great question. I don't know. This is interesting. Yeah. I've, anecdotally, I've had nurses tell me that C. diff is not a thing anymore. 
in their facilities. It's much less of a thing because people are so universally precautious, worried about the COVID, that they are doing things they should have done anyways, like hand washing, uh, general uh, universal precautions, gloving, gowning, all that. And this is interesting because it just, again, shows us how poorly conditioned we are to do the right thing at baseline. And so that may be one of the positives out of this from an occupational standpoint. That's fascinating. I, I did not think of that as maybe an unintended positive consequence. Right. I get so focused <laughs> on all the negative consequences <laughs> hey, that you, can occur. You and me live in the Bay Area. The glass is always half empty here. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I hear you. And and so so going back to so the meat packing stuff, because this was in the news a lot. And so you have the, the face covering inadequacy or inconsistency, you have the packed together people, you have the cold temperature, the poor ventilation. Let's talk about the testing. So you said testing is one of the principles of this. Now, how does testing help us prevent occupational exposures? Well, there are three baskets of testing and they all help. The first basket is testing when someone has a symptom. Mm. So if in the case of a meatpacking plant, if a meatpacking plant worker comes to work with a symptom, they immediately have to be turned away, mm. not go to work and get a test. Mm. If they're positive, they're quarantined, 14 days, now it's 10 if you follow the CDC guidance. Right. right? Um, and so that's number one. Right. Um, uh, number two is what I call outbreak or response testing. Right. So if there are a couple of meatpacking plant workers on one production line, um, they don't share the same household, they didn't carpool together, um, they are working within close proximity to each other, where it could be spread by contact or through the air, um, then everyone within their contact circle at work Gets needs to be tested. Yeah. Um, and probably needs to be tested twice. Right. Either within a week or certainly within 14 days. Right. Right. Because we know the incubation period is that 14 days. This is important. Needs to be probably tested twice. This yeah. just makes it's sense. It's just twice. I, I, that's, that's, that's my recommendation. Yeah. Get them twice. Because yeah. if you get them twice, if, if that person is tested twice, you're going to cover that. You're going to cover that incubation. time period. Yeah. End of story. Yeah. End but, of story. Otherwise, you know, now you send that person home, right? If they were close contact, but um, everyone needs to get a test in that contact circle. How important is the overdispersed nature of this? In other words, the super spreader favored kind of uh, dynamics of this disease, that uh, there's a hyper emitter, a, a clustering phenomenon that seems quite prevalent here. How, how do you think about that in terms of something like a meatpacking plant? Would you do reverse contact tracing, like going back and figuring out who the prime spreader was? How do you think about that? Well, uh, I recommend going back two days. Now that's interesting, is where did the 48 hours comes from, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the incubation period of this is two to 14 days. So if I have a positive worker, let's say a meatpacking worker, I contact trace back 48 hours. Ah, um, That's really just set as a kind of a pragmatic rule of thumb. It's, it's semi-arbitrary, mostly Sem pragmatic. Mostly, mostly a pragmatic rule of thumb. Got but let's it. say we go back for 48 hours mm -hmm. and we contact trace everyone in the workplace and at home, mm -hmm. um, get everybody test, get everybody quarantined and tested a couple of times. Yeah. Um, and uh, and if need be, and this is what has happened in several meatpacking plants around the country, um, shutting down that line 
Yeah. Um, so that you can reset that workplace. I kind of like think of it as wiping out the hard drive. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right? Bring so it in. You know it's clean. You yeah. know it's clean. You yeah. then are starting from a clean slate. Right. If that line is shut down and no one's working with the possibility of transmitting to each other. Right, right, right. So you you could do a hard uh, reboot there. Yeah. Um interesting. And so you're ta- we talked about some symptomatic testing, Just outbreak testing. Outbreak testing. Okay, and the third is what I call um monitoring testing or surveillance testing. Surveillance. I don't like to use the word surveillance. Right, because it has a connotation in the USNA that will already people don't like being told what to do. Now exactly. you're gonna say you're under surveillance you're under testing. Surveillance, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I like to call it sort of testing for prevention or monitoring testing. Um, and that's what we're doing in nursing homes or long-term care facilities. Correct. Right? Such high risk, mm-hmm. you survey them every so often. Yeah, you're right? doing it, what we're doing. We're doing it, I think, at least once a week. Got it. In many nursing homes around the country. Got it. Um, we're doing that in uh, the California prison system. Aha. Uh-huh. Testing custody staff and healthcare worker staff in the prisons in many facilities once a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's gonna pick up you know, the positives that are asymptomatic, that they're not gonna get picked up by symptoms as they come in the door. Right, right. But we're gonna pick up all of those who don't have symptoms, who could be walking in and being a super spreader, don't know it, and here you have 2,000 inmates. And, and let's remember, that's why this is so difficult. It's not like SARS-1, where you were symptomatic when you were contagious. This is a, a 60 to 80% of people can be asymptomatic, in which case you don't know. So this kind of intermittent testing of high-risk facilities, like correctional facilities, nursing homes, is a crucial part of the strategy then, because otherwise people will slip through, like you said, you don't know they're a super emitter, and suddenly there's a huge cluster of infection in an enclosed area. Exactly. I think that that third piece, all of these, by the way, are um, not only my recommendations, they're uh, CDC, uh, public health um, agency uh, recommendations also. Um, The third piece, which is this monitoring testing, Mm. has been from the point of view of the overall public health organization and COVID control, the most challenging Mm. by far. Um, we've We've been limited uh, for several months by a testing shortage. Right. Now we have what I call testing maldistribution. Mm. I think of it sort of like the maldistribution of physicians in tell the United States. This. Yeah, right? tell me about this. Right, so we may have enough doctors in total, but we have them in the wrong places. Right. Right? Right. And so we have testing labs that say, oh, we have plenty of tests that we can run. And then we have employers or worker groups that are saying, I don't know where to get a test, Dr. Harrison. Yeah. Where do I go? Yeah. How do I get one? Common problem, huge problem. Right. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't call it maybe when, when we say, well, we have, we have plenty of tests. It's a, where are they? <laughs> where are they? Where are they? And, right. and what system do we have to distribute them in a way so that if I'm a warehouse, a meatpacking plant, a nursing home, a, a school district, um, I know how to set up a testing program. Mm, so what are they still res- haven't solved that? Haven't solved that. What, what are their resources? What what business? What resources do businesses have? Do they contact folks like you? Are there other consultants that can help with that? Well, there are websites mm. that list testing companies and testing 
locations. Mm. Okay. Um, but, and, and, and that's, as I say, you know, that's just a place to start. Right. But then what we have, unfortunately, from my, from my perspective of helping people stay safe at work, um, a wild west, we have a free marketplace yeah. of testing vendors and testing companies in this country. So we, we have never had a, a, a testing strategy right. that's been coordinated from the federal to the state to the local level. Right, we right. have a lot of folks working on that in that direction, but the reality is because we have over 300 emergency youth authorizations now mm. by the FDA right. to a panoply of testing companies and laboratories. So you have to hope, first of all, for accuracy, availability, turnaround time. Turnaround time has been abysmal in some places. Uh, I had a friend who got tested. Uh, it took 10 days for the result to come back. So that's a useless test in many ways. Yeah, I, I, I could have taken that hundred bucks that your friend might've paid. Yeah. Uh, give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> Send it to my offshore account, Zubin. Or as I say, when I go to Las Vegas and I play the slot machines, I could have just taken my 10 bucks and gone to the bathroom and flushed it down the and toilet. My, down odds, the my odds of winning on that slot machine. Bingo. Bingo, you know, exactly. so yeah, 10 days, useless. Useless. Um, I, I, I think maximum 48 hours. Yeah, I agree. What do you think about Michael Mina from Harvard, his um, idea of a, a rapid home-based, and this is difficult from an FDA standpoint, uh, salivary antigen test that isn't very sensitive, but it's repeated every day. It costs about a dollar a test and it can be self-administered. And it, it's most likely to be positive when you're most likely to be at a high viral load and infectious. Have you thought about this kind of testing at all? I have. Yeah. And I like it. Ah, I am a fan of that concept. Now, I don't know about the specifics of the antigen test and the FDA approval and the test characteristics, but from a conceptual point of view. Beautiful, right? It makes total sense to me that what we need to know is who's infectious Yeah, um, to um, uh, isolate, even if we're wrong. Right. Right, so I think I would rather be wrong with the false positive. Yeah, right? exactly. Okay, all yeah. right. I've, I've, yeah, so I, I get to stay okay. home for a few days. Right, yeah. okay. You know, now that, that can be a problem for folks who can't afford to stay home. Essential so workers, right? Yeah. Essential yeah. Don't, workers. Don't minimize that. I don't yeah. want to minimize it. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's certainly an issue. Right. It's, a, it's actually a critical issue in getting people to participate in testing. That's true because they're worried if they're positive. Oh my goodness, yeah. Their livelihood. Big, we, big, uh, big issue. It, and, and, and you know, we, what I hate is when people uh, uh, blame people for that kind of behavior. You're like, no, no, no. no. This is their life, this is their livelihood. They're gonna do what they can to protect it. They're behaving in their own rational self-interest in their mind, right? So that fear is, is real for people. Yeah, I, I remember a year ago, we talked about medical testing for silica dust yeah. and how hard it would be to get someone to go for a chest X-ray to, to, to say that they had early silicosis because then they, they couldn't keep their job right. in that stone fabrication plan. Right. Well, I see the same challenge now. Uh, okay, um, I'm gonna go get a COVID test. You're telling me I'm positive. I feel fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to stay home for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, I wanna be sure that I have the salary, that I'm compensated. At UCSF, we have had a very generous leave plan. Right. If somebody tests positive. Right. Um, but there's a wide variation right. of those policies across the country. Right, right. Um, we need to have that in place for everybody. I mean, I think the meatpacking plant workers should have the same benefits 
that we have at UC San Francisco. Yeah, I feel we've really squandered resources on things that haven't helped and haven't really focused. You know, we ought to learn from this for whatever the next pandemic is and for this moving forward. You know, this is our chance to do this correctly. You know, really support the people that are then at the highest risk and the vulnerable uh, uh, essential workers. And, you know, which, which again gets to the question of like, do you think that healthcare, frontline healthcare workers are more out of the woods than they were in the beginning? Or do you think now with new surges around the country, this is becoming a big problem in healthcare facilities again, particularly with traveling nurses who are at risk and so on? Well, I think that I'm seeing very positive signs or I'm hearing that about the adequacy of PPE. Mm. Um, I think we've slowly begun to realize that this uh, virus can be transmitted through the air, mm -hmm. not only through the larger droplets that I mentioned, but through the finer particles, and that we need the highest level of PPE that we can have available, which is at least in the N95. Right. And so I think with the provision of N95s, um, with really good uh, symptom screening, really good testing for healthcare workers, um, universal testing of inpatients. I think the good news is that we're we can drive down the risk mm -hmm. to frontline healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that I hope hopefully is better in this, you know, surge 2.5 or surge three <laughs> <laughs> than it was with surge one. Right. Um, and that's what I'm hearing from my from from my colleagues that we're in a better place now for frontline healthcare workers than we were back in March in terms of those worker protections and those programs that we have in place. Now, I think we're still seeing a huge amount of stress and strain Yeah, yeah, yeah. on resources. Uh, and I certainly think emotionally, we're, we're, we're all in a much different place than we were back in March. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and there's a staffing strain. So yes. they just can't staff these places and travelers are burning out and uh, that it's a very expensive strategy to bring in nurses. And then the nurses are, there was a Kaiser Health News piece about how they feel abandoned by their uh, agencies that some some facilities are less good with PPE, less good with um, testing and things like that. And so it's mm -hmm. variable around the country. I think right. you and I are in one of the bastions that has, seems to have done it mostly correctly, which is a blessing. Mm -hmm. And there are other places that have done that too, but then there are some places where it just really has been difficult. I don't wanna forget Zubin though, the nursing home. Yeah, tell me about that. Workers, because I think what, what I was describing maybe is, you know, the uh, the A plus, the Cadillac model. Yeah. That maybe the major medical centers and the- The UCSF and the Stanfords. The UCSF and the, the Stanfords of the world and the- Brigham's you know, and yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we're, we're still seeing outbreaks in nursing homes. Yeah. In spite of the testing, we're, we're, we are still seeing continued problems in long-term care, nursing home, uh, caregivers- uh, working multiple jobs, those employers, those facilities don't have the worker protection resources and knowledge and infection control that I have. Right. And stand and my Stanford colleagues have. Right. And and this is a problem because that's our most vulnerable population. Those are the ones who are more likely to die. Forty five percent of the mortality seems to be in that age group, and nursing homes have taken a big hit, and that population has been a big hit. And at the same time, we're isolating them, keeping them lonely, so they're dying alone. And some are dying of the diseases of despair, of loneliness, and and isolation as well. And so it's it's been a really tough year, man. Like really, yeah, a really yeah. really hard. I mean, uh, the 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 isolation and the loneliness mm. of uh, you know, our relatives in those nursing homes just as achingly sad. Yeah. Um, I think that we know how to get ourselves out of that, however. 
You say, uh-huh. I think that it's terrible, but there is a solution. And that is testing that's widely available. Yep. Right? Frequent, rapid testing. Uh, COVID gets into nursing homes from staff. They're not, it's not getting in from visitors, from family, because nursing homes are not allowing them. Mm. So it's, it's, it's still from staff that are coming in that are positive. Mm. So widespread, accessible, rapid, mm. universal testing um, combined with the resources to do good PPE um, and infection control in those facilities, um, providing the funding. That's the trick. You know, yeah. to those homes, facilities. Um, I mean, 40% of all COVID deaths yep. are in our relatives in nursing homes. Yeah. So, two, you know, 200,000, 200, 100,000 odd. You know, I mean, that's, it's really something that if we're talking about targeted groups and protecting them, well, then we better try to do that. I mean, we can talk about it, but, it, but the practicalities are tough without throwing resources and organized leadership at it and so on. And we haven't really done that. And I, I hope we learn from this because, you know, this is not the first, this is not gonna be the last pandemic. It's not the first rodeo, right? No. You know, this is not the first or last virus that we're gonna see. Not at all. Now, now relating to that, and I think this is a question on many people's minds, and I've t- spoken about this a bit, but it's tough. This one really conflicts me a little bit, and that is schools. And how do we have an aging public school infrastructure? Now there's a disparity, and I've talked about this on the show before, between more affluent people can send their kids to private schools with distancing and smaller class sizes and lots of testing and so on. And then you have the public schools, in particular in San Francisco, that remain closed. Um, How do we think about keeping our teachers and students and their parents safe in an occupational setting in school? Well, first of all, I come at this from the perspective, as, as I do to all workplaces, that we should offer the same level of protection for the under-resourced school district, the under-resourced workplace, the worker who come from a multi-generational family household with high rates of COVID transmission in the community who is working in a meatpacking plant. We should keep the meatpacking plant worker as safe as the worker in a tech company who can work remotely. Now, that's what I call communism. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Fauci. Fauci is a, he's the little devil on my shoulder that uh, <laughs> right. makes me say things that pop into my head. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. So right. Uh, first yeah. of all, I come from it from that frame. Yeah. Um, um, and so that's that's uh, full full disclosure. Okay. Um, that's a know, good frame to come from. Yeah. yeah. That that uh, uh, you know while while we have very well very well resourced public schools or private schools that can put everything in place. Yeah. Um, and our our kids can return to those schools with relatively high reassurance. We have many schools that don't have those resources. And so I come at it from, well, we have to give those schools what we can give the really well-resourced schools. And so that is the same layers of prevention that I mentioned. A school is a workplace for teachers, but it's also a a unique workplace, right? Because we have children in this workplace. 
Fomites, vectors. Fomites, yeah, and as we all know, they are filled with germs yes. when they come in yes. of all sorts. And we knew that before COVID. Um, they're all gonna have sniffles galore, right? They eat their boogers, Bob. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm concerned some of them eat other kids' boogers. Exactly, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have this other unique aspect, not only is a workplace with children, but those children go back and they're, so they're, 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 they're there for what, six or seven hours a day. And then they go back and they pass those germs back to their family members. Right, right. In a big time way, right? Um, it's not like we're gonna tell a eight-year-old, well, just go home and quarantine. Right. You might be positive. We suspect you had an exposure. Just go home and quarantine. You know, when was the last time you tried to quarantine from an eight-year-old? Good luck with or, that. Or a Mom, Mom, I thought you were in quarantine. Yeah. Well, I, 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 someone needs to wipe my butt. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, for anyone with kids, and I've had kids, you know, I know that that's impossible. So we have this unique trifecta in schools um, that makes all of those layers even more complicated, but, but possible. Doable. 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 Doable, right. Right, right. Yeah, doable. Yeah. Um, and um, so, I mean, it obviously starts with the commitment, a frame, that we're going to do this. Right. Right. And then it has to follow with resources, a plan, getting somebody responsible. <laughs> I'm starting to get chest pain. Are, are you? Are you? Because these are our, our public schools. We're talking. I about. know. I mean, those board meetings last eight hours, and in the last hour, they start talking about COVID. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, and these are folks who started out pre-pandemic, uh, rightly concerned about education. Right. The last thing anybody in a school district knew about before January of 2020 was something like COVID. Um, uh, you know, the uh, preparedness planning for something like COVID, a sneaky infectious disease that transmits when kids don't have symptoms. Mm. My goodness, mm. that's really challenging for schools. Now it's reassuring that the children themselves don't seem to get terribly ill relative to adults. Doesn't mean they don't get sick. Doesn't mean they can't die or, or have long-term consequences, but that's one reassuring thing. And there are things stacked in schools' favors. Do you think there's data showing that schools have been really pivotal in spreading this or, or the opposite? Um, there is data that suggests that younger kids uh, become infected less frequently and spread it less than older kids. That's right. So there's a, there's a continuity um, from, but that doesn't mean it's zero, right? Right, I mean, right. It's, it's, a, just, it's a spectrum. It's a yes. spectrum from little to big. Yes. So I think high school students are more like college students. Yeah, that's right. Than they are like elementary school students. I agree, yeah. Right, in 16 terms, and above, yeah. Or even 12, 12 13 yeah, and yeah. above in terms of their behavior. Right. Um, you, know, you, could, you could watch them in school as soon as they leave the school. They're hanging out on the street corner with 10 other kids. Smoking cigarettes, which by the way, are a very effective face covering, Bob. I mean, <laughs> that filter, I mean, that's how many layers of polyester or whatever. You know, I, had, I hadn't thought of that as a, pol- as a public health strategy. Okay, know. guys, let me just tell the people. As a doctor, I advocate Marlboro Reds. They're highly... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, and, and we've seen uh, tens of thousands of college kids 
become infected. Right. We know that because many colleges and universities have put in very intensive testing, testing programs. You have to spit in a cup at yeah. least once a week at a lot of colleges and universities. Yeah. Um, and if you're positive, you go into the quarantine dorm. Got it. Um, and we, we don't have that widespread data in high schools because for, for one thing, high schools have largely not been open yet. Right. And where they are open, we don't have that intense monitoring yeah. in high schools. But I suspect, given the behavior of high school kids, they're closer to college. And then down in the continuum, in the lower grades, I mean, clearly there's a, there's a finite risk of infection. It's not zero. Um, and there have been outbreaks in schools around the globe when they've reopened. It's, 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 it's certainly in part driven by community risk. Right. And that's the way we set it up in California. Right. You know, yeah. if you're, in, if you're if, right, if you're in a yellow county, right, right, you're, right. You're, you're low risk. You have a more clear cut pathway to reopening. That's right. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. I, I think, um, and we have to weigh the downside of keeping school closed, which I think is tremendous on children and families, especially essential workers and so on. And it's been very complicated math on that. You know, mental math, uh, yeah. emotional math too. You know, because we're. And they're, they're, I think half the, you know, I heard, I heard this wonderful interview with an Indiana school board official uh, on NPR. And he basically said, no matter, it used to be when we'd make a decision, 40% of the parents would not like it, 40% would really like it. And there was another like 20% in the middle that were, you know, on the fence. Now it's like any decision they make about COVID, half the the parents are really angry and half are really happy. And it's just how divided we are in general about thinking about this pandemic. And, and they asked him, well, what do you think is based, the basis of that division? And he goes, well, there's the one half that is really catastrophizing and is terrified of this disease. And there's the other half that's really minimizing and is blowing it off as a flu. And uh, I thought that was pretty uh, indicative of what's going on in general in the country. I think, I think what we have to get across here is that there's a connection between community risk and reopening schools. Mm, so explain so, that. Yeah, so I think the last figure I saw was more than half or more of the counties in the United States are in the red zone. Mm. Surging. Surging, yeah. Surge three, mm -hmm. COVID across the country, largely West and Midwestern states. Yeah, yeah. And so if, if we urge to reopen schools and to figure out a plan to do that kind of phase reopening of schools, which I agree with, yeah, we have to look at that map. Right. And we have to make the connection between being able to reopen our schools and getting that map from red to yellow. Right, right, right. They're all intertwined. They're completely intertwined. Yeah, yeah. Un, you know, unlike, well, we might be able to segregate, you know, a warehouse or a meatpacking plant or even a nursing home, which I think is even tough to do. Right. Because those nursing home workers are living in that same community. That's right. But, you know, okay, maybe we can somehow parse those workplaces off but we can't do it for schools. Yeah, it's just Because of this triangle. Right. Because we have the community, we have the kids, we have the teachers, teachers. and they're all living yeah. in, in the, the community. same place. They, they the are community. the community. Right. That is the they, community. That yeah. is the community. Yeah. So we have to think of, of that frame as the school, mm. as the community, and mm. the community as the school. So if we're gonna be successful in reopening schools, it has to start with that public responsibility and that public uh, you know, taking care of each other in mm. messaging. That's a that's a powerful message, actually. I think that's a message people need to hear because, you know, um, if we, if we're in this together, which we are, 
And, you know, look, you can have differing opinions on how much of a threat to your community this thing is in terms of like, oh, there's elderly people and this and that. But the truth is you're not gonna get back to a reasonable frame of life until these red areas turn yellow or green. And that requires us doing the simple things that are actually in the beginning of the talk, right? Face covering, <laughs> ventilation in places and businesses, some distancing, testing. That's it. It's not. Yeah. Now, yeah. we we didn't talk about contact tracing. Now that that is an important. You know, I talked about that outbreak. Um, you know, testing and contact tracing. I would probably add there too. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of fold yeah, them together. You, but you're you right. Fold them together. Absolutely. You know, we 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 just need to do that, and we need to be willing together to be contact traced. Right. We need to be this open. Is, yeah, right? This is tough. We need to be open to answering yeah. that phone. Yeah. yeah admitting. Yeah. Who we've been in touch with. I just read some interesting data, right, on how many people don't really want to fess up. Right, right. Oh, it's a huge. It's quite interesting. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll say this, Bob, and this is because my audience is so diverse and around all around the country. Mm -hmm. You and I live in a little bit of a urban bubble where we're willing to sacrifice some um, autonomy in favor of community. There are lots of parts of the country where people choose almost to live in those parts of the country so yeah. that they can have more autonomy and less community. And I think they'd be more resistant. So in a way, all healthcare is local, all politics is local. Um, that's hampered our ability to have a national policy around this, as opposed to say South Korea, where they're like, okay, we have a plan. We're all gonna do this. We're gonna give up some autonomy. They're gonna contact trace our phones. We're gonna use this. And they're willing to do that. I think in the US, it's a tough sell. It's a tough sell. Yeah, you know, Zubin, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a, a mid-sized Chinese city, small, 10 million. Uh, yeah, a little mid-sized. A yeah. mid-sized city of 10 million in China. They had 13 coronavirus cases. My gosh. 13. Yeah. That's, you know a, that, that's a rounding error on one like street over here. <laughs> and do you know that they tested the entire city? Oh my gosh. The whole city. The whole city. Now, uh, they did it in five days. Uh, hard to know whether the data, you know, how accurate right. the numbers really were. But right. even if they tested a million, right? Even if there was an order of magnitude over exaggeration, right? They test. Let's say they tested a million people. They did it in five days. Yeah, they had four thousand testing sites. Now, I don't think we'll ever do that in the United yeah, States, yeah, right? Because yeah. you mentioned the different culture, That's the right. you know the 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 the, the the culture, I, I don't know how to put this. It's a different it, place, it's right? A I've said it before, it's, a str it's our strength and our weakness. Mm -hmm. It is, it depends. Like in a pandemic, it's a weakness. Many times it is a strength. It's the reason people come here. You know, they want that degree of, of autonomy and freedom and it's a cultural thing. And I, I've talked to so many people about this and, and they really have painted this picture for me that that's what America is about. And it's been a difficult ride for a pandemic. For that reason, the Chinese they can do that. Koreans mm -hmm. can do that. Yeah, yeah. New Zealanders can do it. Right. New Zealanders yeah. can do it. British yeah. Columbians can do it. Right. You know, they right. are they're 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 in a different place We're not than quite we are. There. So you know, I think that we just have to you know recognize the differences right. among us and those different attitudes right. and different places. The Bay Area is not uh, Montana. My you know, my my daughter lives in Montana, and you know, so I go to visit her. I realize you know it just needs different. It, it, Metrics and different attitudes. Yeah, towards, yeah. And in a way, I think environment shapes, I've said this before, environment shapes at adapt, cultural adaptation. And, you know, Montana is this 
big sky country and the Bay Area, it is beautiful. And the Bay Area is beautiful. It's a dense urban diversity that in order to function, we need to have some social lubrication and, and a little bit of the liberal value there. Montana, you may not need that. In fact, it's adaptive to be more autonomous. But um, man, we've come up on an hour here. Was there, this was, I, every time I talk to you, I learn like I'm back in medical school, man. It's humbling and beautiful and thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to meet Darth, Doc Vader. <laughs> I've been seeing him, you know, for the last couple of years, but I've never met him in person. I feel honored. Thank you. Doc Vader has many issues. He's got several board complaints against him, so he's struggling now. So it was really a joy to see him come out of his shell. But I just want to say that, you know, Doc Vader, if 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 you had COVID, you just think of all those viral particles that were <laughs> concentrating inside that mask. And then you release the mask, you get a, this huge bolus. And you know, Vader doesn't care about other people. He's like, he's getting filtration, but when he exhales, boom. Maybe that's the HVAC system I hear, that oh, breathing. could be. He's got his own HVAC. How many air exchanges per volume oh, time? That's that's our next talk. You know what? You know. Speaking our of our next talk, I can't wait to have you back and, and fill us in on any more of this stuff. Uh, Dr. Harrison, Bob, it's such a joy, man. And and to have an expert like you right here in my neck of the woods uh, just fills me with uh, with happiness and being able to share your wisdom with the crowd. So guys, do me a favor. If you like this kind of stuff, just share the video, like it, leave a comment. If you're, if you're on YouTube, subscribe and click the little bell. If you're on Facebook, hit like. If you wanna support the show, become a supporter. It's like five bucks a month and we go deeper in these conversations that get really real and super authentic and it keeps us free of all this commercial jazz. And gosh, I love you guys. Bob, thanks again, man. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, yeah, let's put these on because we're gonna go now and we are out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community really. And we support and love each other and share again through our own experience how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.